We learned Sunday morning that the word religion in the Greek is threskia. Threskia, meaning external framework or the formality of faith or devotion. We talk about the fact that that's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just external. It's superficial. It's not the real thing. And so there's false threskia, false religion, empty, you know, or devoid of the truth, but looks like a framework, a structure, a system. And then there's true religion, true and and undefiled, pure and undefiled religion, as, as Yaakov called it. And that's where you see there is an outward devotion, but there's an inward heart. There's a framework that is not established in and of itself. It's established because of what's inside, because of the faith, because of the devotion that is truly there. I'm good with that kind of religion. You know, that kind of outward expression of our inward faith. But the religion that is empty, the religion that is outward. I I mentioned Sunday morning, there are those who say the word religion literally means to bind And if you're here first service, I said first service, I'm not even really sure where that came from because I know it's not the Greek and I know it's not the Hebrew. Well, in between services, Rachel texted me and she said, it's Latin. Well, of course, I don't believe her. So I had to look it up and she was right. (laughs) It comes from the Latin word. And I'm not going to say it right because I listened to it online and it, it didn't look anything like the letters, but it's religio or I think they pronounce it. Erligio, or something like weird like that. Anyway, religio. It's a Latin word that literally means outward piety or devotion, but even that doesn't mean to bind. So where do we get the word to bind? Some suggest that the Latin word that is spelled R-E-L-I-G-I-O, religio, if we were just saying it in English, comes from the Latin word ligare. And that word means to bind. So it, it, you got to do a little bit of gymnastics there to find the word, and, and there's no proof that it comes from that, but that's the indication, the implication that religion does mean to bind. I would say to you that pure undefiled religion does not bind. It covers, it provides space, it, it protects. It's a good thing. False religion binds. False religion is a binding thing. And whether or not that was the intent with the Latin word, I don't know. But the world at the end is going to find itself in a real bind. Because it's all about false religion. That's where we're at in Revelation 17. We took some time Sunday just to introduce Revelation 17. Just the first few verses. We're going to do the whole rest of the chapter tonight. This is one of those chapters I confess to you I wasn't real thrilled about. Because there's a lot of nuance, and whereas I have said throughout this study, I don't believe Revelation is difficult. I don't believe it's hard. If you'll just walk it through chronologically, for the most part, you can you can understand the flow. But there are some things in the book, and this is one of those chapters that is just heavy. I felt heavy on Sunday. I felt heavy as I was driving home, like, ugh. I don't like all this religious talk. I don't like seeing where the world is going. I don't like the the hunger that we see for people going back to Babylon. But there it is. And here we are, Revelation 17. So we're going to walk this out, and we're going to study it out and seek to fully understand. But let's pick it up again in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment 
of the great harlot who sits on many waters. If you look down at verse 15, and we pointed this out Sunday, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So this is a whore sitting on the world. You said the W-H-O-R-E word, Rick. Yeah, well, that's the King James translation, so just go with me on it. It should be ugly. It should be offensive. As we read here in the first verse, the great harlot, that should offend. The great prostitute, the great hooker, whatever you want to say there, if it's offensive, it should be, because false religion is offensive to God. Why so? Because it takes the heart away from God. It replaces relationship with this system. And it is a world system, as we see, many waters, all the world, caught up in this religious system, this false, phony religion. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of pornea, sexual immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And again, we talked about that Sunday. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. Note that they're in a wilderness and so the implication is a barren place devoid of fruit and water and trees and what we would normally think of as as beautiful and lush. It's a wilderness, it's dry. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her, again, sexual immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Mystery Babylon. Babylon is named 294 times in the Bible. Which city is named the most? Anyone know? It's Jerusalem, 2,400 times. Jerusalem is of great significance. Jerusalem, God's city. Babylon is the counterfeit city. Babylon is the city of Antichrist. It's the city that idolatry has flowed out of. We talked about that Sunday. Six times here in the book of Revelation, the city of Babylon is listed or or a reference to Babylon because here, Mystery Babylon is not the city. I'll come back to that in just a second. While this book clearly remains the revelation of Jesus Christ, not some religious or archaic document, we do recognize that one of the biggest signs of the last of the last days is religion. The spread of false religion. That we're coming to a point where the world is rushing to religion, heading back to Babylon. And again, that was the substance of our study on Sunday and considering the fact we live in a world that wants religion. I don't want religion. And people say, well, I don't want to go to your church. That's not the only kind of religion. I mean, there's all kinds of religious attitudes. And and like I said, look at the bumper stickers that are out today. Look at where people are going. How are they spending their time? Everybody's seeking something. Go to a graveyard. What used to be crosses now is replaced with all kinds of symbols of what? Religions. If you look in the military, the, the symbols that now can be used on a military headstone are plentiful. Because the world is rushing to religion, heading back 
to Babylon, to that global, one-world, all-inclusive religion, to try to bring it all together. You know how that's going to work. It's not. It won't. It can't. But something we've got to keep clear in our study, and this is really important to note. If you didn't get this Sunday, get it tonight. The difference between chapter 17 and chapter 18. You've got to recognize this difference, or or you might find yourself confused. Chapter 17 is mystery Babylon. Chapter 17 is dealing with religious Babylon. Whereas chapter 18 is dealing with literal, commercial, political Babylon. Antichrist's capital, the actual city in which Antichrist will dwell, will reside, will call home during the tribulation, actual Babylon. But we're not even there yet. That's next week. Religious Babylon is chapter 17. And the reason I point that out, and it's important to note, is that not all of the biblical references to Babylon are geographical. Many of them, in fact, are evocative. You know, the city of Jerusalem is even called Babylon in different places. When God is pointing to Jerusalem and He's saying, you, my people, are filled with idolatry, He refers to Jerusalem as Babylon because of their behavior, because of their false religious actions. The name is used to imply false religion and idolatry as well as to be a place. Chapter 18, it's a place. Chapter 17, it's a picture. It's a type. It's pointing out this mystery, this false religion. And if we confuse these two aspects of Babylon, that is religious and commercial, we're going to confuse our study. And we don't want to do that. Before this chapter, in the Revelation, we've already seen Babylon named twice. And what's interesting is the two names, one goes to the religious Babylon and the other one goes to commercial Babylon. Listen to this. Revelation 14, verse 8, previews religious Babylon. Chapter 17. Again, Revelation 14, 8, it is another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Okay, well, that's a tie-in. That's a picture of the falling of false religion. Chapter 17, Mystery Babylon. Revelation 16, verse 19 then says, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. That previews chapter 18, the fall of commercial Babylon. Okay, so religious, mystery, and commercial, political Babylon. Both aspects of Babylon will fall and fall hard, but the first to be crushed is mystery Babylon. Now, do you remember the four women that are talked about in Revelation? Four different women. Jezebel, in Revelation chapter 2, speaking of that woman of Thyatira, that idolatrous woman. Secondly, Israel referred to the woman in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 19, we see at the end, and we're coming close, we're close to 19. Are you excited to get to 19? I can't wait. In real life as well as in our study. I can't wait for Revelation 19. But in Revelation 19, we see the bride. So Jezebel, Israel, the bride. And then, of course, here in chapter 17, mystery, Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots of the abominations of the earth. According to archaeological and historical, extra-biblical documents, 
and biblical sources as well, the rebel Nimrod built Babylon, Genesis chapter 10. But it was his wife, a woman, who carried his rebellion to the religious extreme. We mentioned her on Sunday. We're going to talk a little bit about her right now. Her name was Semiramis. Semiramis. She has other names in other cultures. I'll point them out to you in a few minutes. But you need to hear a bit of her story. If you heard this before, just ride along. It's bizarre. It's tweaked. (laughs) It's mysterious. As legend had it, uh, Nimrod and Semiramis were married. And for a time, they rode the pagan wave together. There in Babylon and, and with this whole pagan mystery religion and the involvement of false gods and false religion as they began to uh, stir this stuff up for the first time. This is now happening on planet Earth until Nimrod was killed. In the days of her mourning, Semiramis claimed something amazing. She said a sunbeam from heaven pointed and landed, shone on her belly, and the spirit of her dead husband Nimrod entered her, impregnated her, and she gave a reincarnated birth to a child. So from her perspective and from what the ancient teachings of Semiramis taught was that this child that she bore was truly her husband. (laughs) Weird. Who impregnated her, his dead spirit coming back to life, and the child was born, and she named the child Tammuz. Tammuz, which means sprout. She named him Sprout. Well, it was springtime, so okay, you want to name, I mean... Celebrities name their kids things like Apple and Blue Ivy, so I guess Sprout's okay. In the springtime, to commemorate the birth, they made an egg and fashioned it out of gold. They called it the golden egg of Astarte. Beautiful golden egg. People wanted to follow suit, and and as celebration spread out and continued year after year, they would color eggs and worship rabbits. Symbols of fertility. It became the celebration of Ishtar, although if you pronounce Ishtar correctly, it's Easter. So that's where Easter kind of has its pagan roots. Well, we just just had Easter Sunday. Yeah, we had Resurrection Sunday. Yeah, but I heard you say Easter, Rick. I'm not really concerned about that. We know who we were worshiping. But that's the rootedness of this. And what we, I think, need to be aware of is that there are pagan roots that have crept into at least some aspects of Christianity. What is pagan, what is not? And once I realize it's pagan, I really don't want to go there. Well, Ishtar, oh, by the way, Ishtar is another name for Semiramis. So that's one of her many names. Well, Tammuz grew, grew to childhood. And one day, at the time of the winter solstice, he was playing outside when he got gored by a wild boar. And little Tammuz was killed. Semiramis, well, she wept and fasted and entered into a period of self-denial for 40 days, at the end of which Tammuz miraculously rose from the dead. This is how the ancient story goes. 40 days of self-denial from the death of Tammuz to his supposed resurrection, and that was carried over into a 40-day observance that is still continued in the church today in some aspects called Lent. Lent. 
Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 14 says, He brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. The name Tammuz is in the Bible. Why are the women weeping for Tammuz? It was Lent. Or at least the celebration, the Lenten celebration of self-denial. And there were Israelite women in the time of Ezekiel, which was the time of Jeremiah, which was the time that Israel was about to go into captivity in Babylon because of their idolatry. And Ezekiel has this vision where the Lord takes him into Jerusalem, Ezekiel is actually in Babylon, already in captivity, as this vision in Jerusalem of women sitting around weeping for Tammuz, doing that 40-day fasting and self-denial and weeping of false religion. So we even see it playing out right there in Israel. But the story continues. In further celebration of Tammuz, people worshipped by placing logs on the fire calling them Yule Logs, Yule being the Chaldean word for child. And this bright burning log was a symbol of the, of the reincarnate, rebirthed life of Tammuz. Semiramis would continue on in this uh, mystery religion, developing it, uh, taking a name for herself as the, as the leader of this religion. She called herself the Queen of Heaven. Which, if you look through Catholic documents today, oh, Rick, are you going to go after the Catholic Church tonight? Just bear with me. But in Catholic doctrine today, Mary is called the Queen of Heaven. That name was conscripted from Semiramis. That's where it came from. Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon would center around these two, the Queen of Heaven and her infant child. And this is what's really fascinating. This is what began the whole Madonna and child icon that existed, predates Roman Catholicism by 3,000 years. We see a Madonna, a mother-child, a Madonna holding a, a, a little baby. And the little baby usually is pretty creepy looking, looks like a little adult, about that big, you know. And, and she typically will have her hand up like this and holding the little baby and the, the fingers all speak of idolatry. And in that iconography, that, that picture, the Madonna and child spread out across cultures. Again, long before Jesus was born. The Madonna and child figure had different names in different cultures. Early Babylon, Semiramis and Tammuz. In Roman culture, Venus and Cupid. In Egyptian culture, Isis and Horus, which, by the way, when the hand is held up like that, and often you'll see this in, in uh, paintings of, of mother and child supposed to be Mary and Christ, her hand is held up like this. And the first two fingers are Isis and Horus. That's what that represents. In Greek culture, Semiramis and Tammuz are called Aphrodite and Eris. And in Canaanite culture... More close to home as we study the scriptures, there were two names for the mother and the child, Ashtaroth and Baal. So the worship around the Asherah pole or the Ashtaroth, that's the worship of Semiramis. That dates back to mystery Babylon and Israel was caught up in that. They would go up into groves of trees where there were idols and icons and they would worship up in these groves thinking that they were hidden away from God and he couldn't see what was going on. And they were worshiping Madonna and child. Not, not, not Madonna, but you know, what is she now? 
Madam X, I think, is the new. She's she's trying to redo herself again, and it's just not going to work. It's the '80s are over. Let it go. Anyway, Madonna and and child that image, and you may hear all of this. And I don't know for for some of you who've heard this before. Some of you are hearing this for the first time, and you're saying, "Wait, no, that's not okay." A miraculous birth and a resurrection and all this stuff and it's messing with my Christian theology. Why would you even tell me this? It's very unsettling. Who was the first to hear of God's declaration of a coming Savior by a miraculous birth? Who was the first one that heard that? It was Satan. God declared that in the garden. Do you remember? It's called the Proto-Evangelicum or First Gospel. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity, God speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed, which right there is an indication of something miraculous because as we've talked about, women don't have seeds. Women have the egg. Man provides the seed. But her seed and yours, Satan, he says, I'm going to put enmity there and he, this seed of woman, is going to bruise you on the head. Implication, he's going to crush you. And you shall bruise him on the heel. And of course, you know how this played out, that that Satan did bruise Jesus on the heel. As the nails went through his feet, His heels would have been bruised all the way up the back of his legs as the nails went into his hands. Satan for a time thought he won. He bruised the miraculous seed of woman on the heel. All the while knowing he had to do that because he wanted to keep the other thing from happening. That is the crushing of his own head by this seed of woman. Proto-evangelicum. And Satan was the first to hear it. Satan's not an idiot. Very wily, very sharp thinking, processing. You know what Satan knows that a lot of people don't know? He knows that when God says something, it must happen. It must take place. He was with God long enough in eternity prior to know that when the Lord spoke, that's what took place and there was no going back. So, hey, there's going to be a miraculous seed in a woman. And, well, let's see if we can't mess that up. Let's see if we can't come up with our own counterfeit to this and launch into it and take people off in a different direction long before this miraculous seed of woman actually happens. Well, you know, there was a truth. God did speak that a seed of woman would crush Satan on the head. And that seed would be Jesus, but not by a reincarnated dead husband but by the Holy Spirit of the living God. You know what's interesting about the way God did it versus the way Satan tried to counterfeit it? God took thousands of years to prepare us for it. He talked about it. He gave prophecy of it. Isaiah 7.14, a virgin will be with child. This is the sign. I'm going to give you a, a son, a child will be born to you. Isaiah chapter 9. And multiple prophecies throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is going to happen in Bethlehem. And all of how this would take place, God took time ahead to say, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to take place. So when it does, you're going to know that's what's going on here. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, the angel told to Mary. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God, not the Son of Nimrod. Son of God. Matthew 1.18 
tells us before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, which is completely different than the Semiramis story, which is some hodgepodge about a dead husband impregnating her. This is God who would enter the world in this miraculous way. Again, the devil sought to avoid this head-crushing prophecy by doing what he does best, by counterfeit. By trying to shake it down early. Get the word out ahead. You know, it's like what the demons did with Jesus. They tried to announce that he was the Son of God before Jesus was ready for it to be announced. God always takes his time to make it clear so that when it happens, we know this is of him. Satan always jumps the gun and so enter the deception of Semiramis and Tammuz. By the way, hear me on this, nowhere in Scripture are we given a mother-child image to worship. We're never told to worship mother and child. In fact... What we're told is Luke chapter 2, verse 16. The shepherds came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And Luke chapter 2, verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. So that's one reference, but we don't see worship of mother and child there. We see the shepherds coming to see the child and praising God. In the other scene, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, which happened probably one to two years later, the Magi coming into the house saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped them. No, that's not what it says. They fell to the ground and worshipped Him. They worshipped Jesus, who at that point wasn't even an infant, he was a toddler. We don't see mother and child being worshipped together anywhere in the Bible. In fact, aside from the brief reference there at his birth, it's never child that's worshipped, it's Lord. It's always the worship of Jesus as Lord. Well, Mystery Babylon got stirred up, the stories began to get passed along, the mystery expanded, the darkness deepened culture to culture. Finally, it ended up in Rome. Now, we talked about several weeks ago how it got there. You may or may not remember this. It ended up in Pergamos. And Pergamos, for a time, was a seat of idolatry in Asia Minor. But then, from there, when Rome conquered Pergamos and began to conquer the known world, it became part of Roman idolatry and Roman culture. And Semiramis and Tammuz became Venus and Cupid. Now, how did this get into Christianity? In the 4th century, around early 300s, Constantine battled for power over Rome. As they, they went at it, he had a stroke of what I would call political brilliance. He trumped the other guy. You know, I'll tell you something about President Trump. For whatever people think about him, he was brilliant in the last election. And he did tap a large population in America of, do you remember what he called people? The forgotten man. I am here for the forgotten ones. Guess who were the forgotten ones in Rome? Christians. And there was a huge population of Christians who had been growing, by the way, through intense persecution for 283 years. That was the standard of Rome. Persecute and kill Christians. But the more they were persecuted, the more they grew. The more there were. 
until finally Constantine comes along and he sees this voter block and he has a, a vision. Now, now I'm, I'm probably offending both now Catholics and Greek Orthodox. There's a lot of different perspective about Constantine. Suddenly he converted. I saw, you know, I, I saw a cross in the sky saying in this symbol, go and conquer. And the Christians were like, huh? And Constantine signed the Edict of Toleration, which stopped persecution of Christians in Rome. Later, the Edict of Milan would be signed, and that would actually cause Christianity to become the state religion of Rome. Well, Constantine converted. People still debate the legitimacy of his faith. He was eventually baptized on his deathbed. So no one really knows. Did he really have faith? It's hard to say, because if he did, then you would hope he would go all the way. By the way, I hope if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will go all the way. And not just halfway. Like Constantine minting a coin that on one side has the cross, and on the other side has pagan symbols. See, that's that's half and half. That's trying to combine. That's an amalgam. That's false religion. That's how false religion got into Christianity. Constantine's Rome, as I said, first tolerated Christianity, then embraced Christianity as the state religion, but never drove out paganism. When Christianity came in, paganism remained, and instead, what Rome did was they Christianized paganism and they paganized Christianity. Let's mix it all together. I mean, you got all the pagan priests. What are they going to do? Let them keep their jobs. We'll just make them priests of the church. And all those pagan temples, well, we'll make them Christian basilicas. In 366 AD, Damasus, the bishop of the church in Rome, took the title that that belonged to the pagan high priest of Babylonian mysticism. The title was Keeper of the Keys, and he took it for himself, Pontifex Maximus, where it was finally shortened to Pontifex and then Pontiff. That's where it came from. And I'm just, again, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you history here. All the icons and idols were kept. Incense and candles, we can use those in church, right? Hierarchies and orders, we'll keep those. There's some good structure there. Hats and robes, they all stayed. Jeremiah thought I was wearing a robe tonight, apparently. Now he's hiding. He saw me sitting up here, looked up, saw the collar, and he goes, Rick wearing a robe? Yeah, a robe that says Crawford on it. It's a baseball team, dude. Yeah, I'll tell you about it. Have you heard of the Crawford baseball team? Pittsburgh Crawfords, 1935. I'll tell you more later. It's amazing. Anyway, it's a gift of a, of a dear brother. So, <laughs> not a robe. But they kept the robes. And they kept the crimson colors. By the way, did you notice the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet? Well, those are the colors of the cardinals. Those are very Catholic colors when, when, in terms of the robes that are being worn. And the Madonna and child image of Semiramis and Tammuz was com- conveniently applied to Mary holding the infant Jesus. They said, we'll just use the... Why throw away these idols? We can use them. We'll just say that's Mary and Jesus. And that's how it began. And you know, that, that always happens. That's what people do. We take a simple, pure idea and we expand it and add to it and build it up and religiousize it and, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And that's what we've seen in the church across 2,000 years. I've told you before, when we moved into this building, the biggest struggle that I had was trying to keep it simple. I think that remains for me as senior pastor of the British Christian Fellowship. The biggest challenge that I have is trying to keep our fellowship simple and on point. Because the bigger you get and more people who come, the more complex we tend to want to make things. Look at the laws of America. Who can read that stuff? It's just, it's the tendency of humanity. And we see it happening in the church. And so when that paganism, little bits and pieces come in, suddenly it begins to pick up steam. And next thing you know, you got this big behemoth that's spread out and involving everything. Next thing you know, you got Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Rick, are you calling the, the church? No, I'm not calling the church an abomination. Are you saying all Catholics are? No, I'm not saying all Catholics are. I'm telling you where this stuff came from. Mother of harlots here indicates all the offspring of paganism. It all came from somewhere. It was all birthed. And now, in Revelation 17, they are all coming home to mama. Remember, chapter 17 is religious, you might say ecclesiastical Babylon. Chapter 18 is commercial or political Babylon. Geographically speaking, commercial Babylon will, I believe, be located in Babylon, 59 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq. It's going to be utterly destroyed, as described in Revelation 18, which we'll hopefully get into Sunday morning. But this is mystery Babylon. It is not a city to be destroyed. It is a religion to be crushed. A religion that will spread out over the whole world, although it will be headquartered. And I'll explain. Verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Yeah, so did I, first time I read this chapter. What is this? Who is this? John isn't even sure. But I'll tell you what, this mystery Babylon, this mother of harlots, is drunk on blood. Blood of the saints, blood of the witnesses of Jesus. From 60 to 312 A.D., across ten waves of persecution, an estimated of five to seven million Christians were killed by the governing power of Rome. What's interesting, get this, religious Rome, the Roman church, is responsible for the deaths of over 50 million Christians. People who claim faith in Christ, who were killed because they would not bend the knee to the Roman church, And think about that comparison. Governmental Rome. Killing Christians. Five to seven million. The Church of Rome killing over ten times the number of killed. For those who claimed Christ but did not or would not align with Roman Catholicism. Now, do the research yourself. Don't, don't be offended by what I'm saying. It's not just Protestant scholars. It's not just secular scholars. This comes from Catholic historians who objectively recognize this to be true. And by the way, I don't blame Catholics today for that slaughter. Any more than I blame white people today for slavery in America 200 years ago. That's not your fault. I have ancestors, I'm sure, who had slaves. And I'm not proud of that, but I didn't do that, nor would I do that, or have anything to do with that. 
So I'm not going around saying, well, I can't believe you all allowed that to happen 200 years ago when you weren't alive. Well, come on. I mean, let's be reasonable. So I'm not looking at the Catholic Church today and saying, well, <laughs> see what you guys did. Let's be fair. But understand, while I don't blame Catholics today, I do blame the religion. I blame any false religion that causes these things to happen. Where there's a fruit, there is always a root. Jesus said in Matthew 7.16, you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And that's why when people talk about Christianity, I say, don't look at the things that happened in Roman Catholicism. Don't look at the things that even Protestant Christians did. Don't look at those crusaders of the crusades who did unmentionable things. Go back to the founder. You want to know what Christianity is about? Go to Jesus. What did He do? That is the root of Christian faith. He's the root. In fact, He's the root and the descendant of David, Revelation tells us. He's the root. And you can look at Jesus and say, that's the way we're supposed to be, and any fruit that's good will come from that. That's why I say when you look at Islam, you want to know what Islam truly is at its heart, at its root? Look at Muhammad. There's your root. What did he do? What was he about? That's Islam. And you can do that with any religion. Well, with with Jesus, who doesn't even want religion, just relationship, he is the root, and the fruit is anything that is of Christ. But get this, when it's all said and done, the cup which holds the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Christ, of Jesus, is in the grasp of a woman who is represented by, or who represents the Babylonian mystery religion. The Babylonian mystery religion. Note one more thing here in verse 6. It says, she's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Some of your Bibles might say the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, but the word martyr there is witness. It's marturo or martureo, which is where we get the word martyr, but it also simply means witness. Why does that matter? Well, I think we're looking at two people groups here in verse 6. The woman's drunk with the blood of the saints and she's drunk with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. The witnesses of Jesus would be Christians. Who would the saints be? Israel. Israel. Saints is hagios. Typically, hagios in the New Testament does refer to the church or to Christians, but holy ones, hagios, saints is also a word used in the Hebrew Scriptures, Kadosh, that refers to Israel. And this woman, this mystery Babylon, is drunk on the blood of Jewish people who were slaughtered by false religion over the years, as well as witnesses of Jesus. I think we're talking about both people groups who have been slaughtered, and she's drunk on the blood of both and this Babylonian mystery religion, as it, as it raises its truly ugly, whorish head in the tribulation, will have an HQ. It will have headquarters. I believe not in Babylon, but in Rome itself during the tribulation. Now watch this, verse 7. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman... And of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Wait a minute, something just changed. Something's different now. Did you catch it? You see, 
before, it was the woman who's riding on the beast, verse 3. Now, the beast is carrying the woman. You might say, same thing. No, there's a nuance there that I think is important. This is always what happens. Religion begins to control us, and then religion loses control. Especially where politics and power are involved. See, I said this on Sunday. Religion entices power and is enticed by power, which ultimately destroys religion. And that's what we see happening. At first, she's riding the beast. She's got the control. She's cracking the whip. The woman is riding the beast. Now the beast is carrying the woman, perhaps where she doesn't even want to go. Now she's got to do what the beast wants to do. Go where the beast wants to go. Serve, as it were, the beast himself. The beast is carrying her, the angel says. And he has seven heads and ten horns. And you start to get into the heads and the horns and all this stuff. And that's where I come to 17 and go, when can we get to 19? Because there's a lot of perspective on this. Look at verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Huh? First of all, how can my name be written in a book before I was born? You know that? For all those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, that is, if you want to be saved, if you, be, if you want to belong to Jesus, if you claim Him as Lord and Savior, if you want to be saved for eternity, your name has to be in that book before the foundations of the world. How is that possible? I wasn't even named before the foundation of the world, you might say, to which I would respond, yes, you were. See, God heard your name, knew your name, before you were born. He sees the whole thing at once. He's aware of history of the world from beginning to end. The whole thing, all from God's perspective, outside of time. He's not bound by time. So from His perspective, everything's simultaneous. Which, by the way, is how the blood of the cross cleanses both before and after the cross. Jesus sees the blood. Or God sees the blood, the sacrifice. And therefore could say to Abraham before the cross, your faith will save you. By your faith, I'm crediting you with righteousness. The righteousness that would be blood-bought by Jesus from us, for us, chronologically 2,000 years later. But from a God's eye perspective, here's the cross, here's Abraham. He sees it happening at the same time that Rick declares faith in Jesus Christ 2,000 years after that. So my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Is yours? Well, I, I think so. How, how do I know? Well, do you believe in Jesus? Have you called Him Lord and Savior? If you have, your name's in the book. If you haven't, claim him. Your name will be in the book. I think that's marvelous because what that tells me is when I was wandering lost, God already knew I was going to be one of His. I was already tagged. Long before I chose Him, He chose me to choose Him knowing I would choose Him. I, I'm not going to go there again. So, <laughs> Romans 8.29 tells the story, Well, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the first among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He glorified. But it all begins with the foreknowledge of God. He knew, therefore, knowing that you were going to choose Him, He wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the world was created. There's the assurance of your salvation and mine. I, I just think that's marvelous. But note this about the beast. It says again in verse 8 that he was, 
That's prior to John's writing he existed. And is not. That would be at the time of John's writing. Keep everything in simple context here and it's not too hard. And is about to come up out of the abyss. That would be after John's writing. And of course we saw Revelation chapter 9. We saw coming up out of the abyss. One called Abaddon, whose name means destruction. And I suggest that's the spirit of Antichrist right there. Coming up out of the abyss, leading that demon charge. Well, verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other one has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, hold it right there just for a moment. Here's wisdom, and unfortunately, there's a lot of foolishness that's been applied to these verses. A lot of confusion has been uh, pulled out of this, and it happens when we get out of the text and out of the context, and when we try to force what we see happening or try and force our cultural opinion into and onto Scripture. Let me give you the, most two, the two most simple answers out there. The two most simple answers to what might be being said here about here's the mind that has wisdom. Seven heads, seven mountains, and seven kings. And what is all of this? First thing is what I would call an empirical application. Not empirical, Empirical. That is an application of empires. And there are those who look at this and they say, okay, the seven heads are seven kings. Seven heads, seven mountains, seven kings, and five have fallen, one is, one has not yet come. And, and they will say this is, if I'm looking at the ancient empires of history, then we start with, specifically over the Middle East, we start with Egypt. And then we go to Assyria. Then we go to Babylon. And then Persia, then Greece, Rome would be number six, and then number seven would be a revived Roman Empire. Well, that fits. There's seven, seven empires, seven heads, seven mountains, seven kings. Now, some have gone beyond this. There are entire books that have been written, by the way, since 2005, Actually, since 2001, but they really started to come out in the mid-2000s, the early 2000s. And that book's talking about the fact that what's really going on here is that number seven and then on into number eight is Islam. That the eighth kingdom is actually Islam. That the world, global world religion is Islamic and is the growth of of the Islamic religion throughout the world. That that's the final world religion. And some have tried to put that together and tie that in. And the reason why I find it interesting that it's really sprung up in the last couple of, couple of decades, but really the early 2000s, is what happened in 2001. 9-11. Suddenly, the world's interest in Islam exploded, and Bible scholars at that time started applying Islam to Revelation. And starting to see, well, can we make this fit? And, and how does this fit in here? Let me give you some problems with Islam being this religion. Now, I will say this. I think Islam will be part of the one world religion. So will Mormonism. So will Roman Catholicism. So will every aspect of religion that you see in the world today. Jehovah's Witness. Methodists. Presbyterians. Hopefully no one from the bridge, but could happen. 
It's just going to be a conglomeration of false religions. So yeah, I think Islam will be part of that. Part of that whole mess. But get this, while Islam has historically been virulently anti-Semitic, there has never been a truly cohesive Muslim empire across the Middle East. Now you might say, well, what about the Ottomans? They were Turkish. And Islam is, is, is a religion. The Ottoman Turks, who, who were Islamic, but they were Turkish, and it was a Turkish empire. And even when you look at the Muslim empires across the Middle East, they were never cohesive because they can't get along long enough to be cohesive. The Arab nations, I'll tell you what, if Israel wasn't there in the middle of them, they would be fighting each other anyway. They already are. The Iraq-Iran war that, that happened a couple decades ago, t- tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands were killed in that, in that war between Persians and Iraqis. And so we, we see this, this fighting and this, this vitriol, and they, they can't get along. But listen, there's ne- this is more important. There's never been an Islamic empire of any kind at a time when Israel was a nation. And that's the key. That's the key to all of this. What was the last world-dominating nation in power before Israel was destroyed and dispersed? Rome. Rome. Then Israel was destroyed, A.D. 70, and there was no more Israel until 1948. So honestly, anything that happened between A.D. 70 and 1948 in terms of Middle Eastern or world empires doesn't matter because Israel was not even a nation. So it doesn't fit the, the paradigm and, the, and what's being talked about in the Revelation. Israel's got to be part of this. And there's one more problem with the empirical view. That is that this is seven empires. And it's, it's that it lacks the specificity of John here in Revelation 17. This is where you've got to put your scholar's hat on and look closely. What is he saying? He's not just saying seven heads. He's saying seven heads, which are seven hills, which are seven kings. He gets more and more specific as he goes. Seven heads of the beast. Okay, there's a picture. It's ugly. It's brutish. But it's actually seven hills. That tells you something. And then it's seven kings. He doesn't say nations. He doesn't describe nations here. He describes hills and kings. So let me give you what I think is even a more simple and more precise understanding of this. And that is what I would call an imperial application. An imperial application. Listen again. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And the word mountains there is ore. In the Greek, literally translated small mountains or hills. That's important. The seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. And what is the city of the seven hills? It's Rome. I'll even name them for you. There's Palatine, Capitoline, Aventine, uh, Caelian, or Caelius, Esquiline, Viminal, and Quirinal. There are the names of the seven hills. That's, That's Rome today. Catholic Encyclopedia reads, It is within the city of Rome, called the city of seven hills, that the entire area of Vatican State proper is now confined. The city of seven hills. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, think again. Where? What was the time of John's writing? 
It's the first century. Who was the power when John was writing? Rome. What would the people understand as the seven churches there in Asia Minor are receiving the revelation for the first time? Would this be beyond them or would it be comprehensible to them? And I submit that it's comprehensible. They would say, oh, the seven heads, that's Rome. And that ties in beautifully with Daniel talking about Rome as the last empire and a revived Roman empire as the next one. The city of seven hills. Note also that the phrase that begins verse 9 is, here is the mind which has wisdom. You see it there? Here's the mind which has wisdom. Where have we heard that before? One other place in Revelation. Turn back and look at Revelation 13, verse 18. John says, here is wisdom. So he starts the verse the same way. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. What's your point, Rick? John is tying Antichrist to Rome. There's a connection here. What about Babylon? Babylon we're not talking about till Revelation chapter 18. We're talking about Revelation 17, false religion headquartered on the city with seven hills in Rome. And John connects. Here's the mind that has wisdom. Antichrist is the 666. And guess what? Here's Rome, the city of the seven hills. Think this through. Follow it through with me. What's the simple explanation? Antichrist has to do with Rome. There's a connection here. Look at verse 10 back in Revelation 17. And, so not only are the seven heads seven hills, and they are seven kings. Kings, not nations, kings. Well, kings can represent nations, I understand that. But not here. Five have fallen, one is. The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Five have fallen. Again, kings, keep it simple. Just the, I'm, I'm just giving you the simplest explanation. There are other explanations, and you can go out and find them. But by the time you get to the, ne- the explanation, look behind you, and you will see several hoops that you have jumped through just to get there. The most simple explanation, seven kings. Five have fallen. The word fallen here is hepason, and it literally, well, it's from the word pipto. Pipto. Fallen. It means to descend, perish, to be removed from power by death. Five have been removed from power by death. Pipto is the word. You don't want to pipto through those tulips. <laughs> At the time of Judges, trying to see if you're awake. I heard a little sound from Deb, so she's still with us. That's good. At the time of John's writing, get this, five kings, Roman emperors, had been unnaturally removed from power by death. Five had fallen. Torn from leadership, torn from power by death. I'll give these to you, and here are the five. Julius Caesar was assassinated. Then you've got Augustus. He died of a prolonged illness, so we're not going to count him. Because he was not removed from power, he just he died of, of an illness. Then you've got Tiberius was poisoned. Caligula stabbed to death. Claudius smothered to death. Nero. Nero was removed from power, thrown into prison, 
And he stabbed himself to death in prison. He committed suicide by stabbing. That was nuts. Three rival empire emperors then rose and they fought for control, but all of them were killed. None of them achieved control until Vespasian. Well, we've already got our five who had fallen before John. Vespasian, he died of natural causes. His son Titus, conqueror of Jerusalem, he died of natural causes. So John is saying not that the last five emperors have fallen, but that five had fallen, dying an unnatural death, being ripped from power. And from Julius Caesar to when John is writing, five had five Roman Empire emperors. Then John says, one is. Who was, while John is writing the Revelation, who currently was emperor? His name was Domitian. Domitian's the one who exiled John onto Patmos. One is, Domitian. By the way, it's interesting, he too would fall, murdered by two Praetorian prefects. So he now fits the original five who all had fallen. Now he will fall. Ultimately, after John wrote this, Domitian would be murdered as well. And then, number seven, one has not yet come. This one who will come up out of Rome, as Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27 indicates, Antichrist. Antichrist is the seventh. He's going to remain for a little while. Then there's going to be, well, an assassination attempt. We read this earlier in Revelation 13. An assassination attempt which will look like he's been killed and then miraculously raised back to life. So there's an attempt on his life. But even beyond that, Antichrist will fall. He will be removed from power ultimately and executed as he is seized and thrown alive into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 19 verse 20 tells us. So he fits the pattern. Kings, all who fall, who die unnaturally, ripped from power. You've got the five before John, Domitian at the time of John, and Antichrist. And there's your seven kings. Seven kings related to the seven hills, which is Rome. We're talking Roman emperors. And in verses 9 and 10, what John is really doing here is drawing our attention to Rome. Geographically, the seven mountains or hills. Imperially, seven fallen kings. And again, I remind you, Christians and Jews alike in John's day would have seen and understood this to be Rome. Islam, by the way, did not come along until 650 A.D. 650 years after this. So they would get this. Verse 11, continuing. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. That's not too hard to understand. I know it seems uh, curious there, but that the seventh king is also an eighth king is simply to say he rises as king over the seventh kingdom, the revived Roman Empire for the first three and a half years of tribulation. And then there's that that attempted assassination attempt and and it it looks as though he dies and that the dragon raises him back to life. I don't think it's literal. I I think it's a a counterfeit, a false, uh, false death, false resurrection. But either way, you see this at the midpoint of the tribulation. He rises back and then he shows his true colors as the world dictator, the dominating antichrist for the last three and a half years. So there are two aspects to this guy. He's a seventh and he's also an eighth. You also could say that the eighth 
is the Antichrist spirit now fully indwelling this world leader. And so he's an eighth in that he's different than all of the prior emperors. Although there's one that came close. There's a prior emperor among those original five who Bible scholars have looked at and wondered about across the centuries. And his name is Nero. Caesar Nero. We've talked about Nero before. Bloodthirsty killer of Christians. Absolutely went insane. He wasn't always that way. In fact, at first he seemed to be doing pretty well. He was an amazing political mind. He was known to be a very sharp administrator until a certain point something happened and and he went nuts. And I think what happened was the Apostle Paul. Now, I, I can't prove this, but I can suggest this to you, that the Apostle Paul appeared before him and began to witness for Jesus. When did that happen? You may recall that Paul was taken to Rome at at the end of the book of Acts. He was taken on a journey to Rome. And and then we don't really know after that, but historical documents indicate he was set free from there. He never got to stand up before Nero, before the emperor. They just had him under house arrest for two years. And then they set him free. But then he was re-arrested, brought back, and stood up before Nero, who proclaimed his execution. And Paul was then killed. Paul stood before Nero. How do you know for sure? Because Acts 27 verse 24, an angel stood before Paul on the ship before they had the great shipwreck. The angel stood before Paul and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And this messenger of God gives him a word from God. You're going to stand before Caesar. Paul stood before Caesar. Stood before Caesar Nero. Now this is what's interesting because historically right around that same time that Paul would have stood before Nero is when Nero went nuts and started killing Christians. Dipping them in hot wax. You know some of the horrible stories. Putting them up on poles throughout his large garden. Riding around in a chariot. Crying out the light of the world as he lit them on fire. He was brutal and bloodthirsty and literally crazed and insane in his attacks on Christians. He would dress Christians up as sheep. And then he would throw them into the arena and have wild animals, dogs and lions, attack them dressed as sheep. I mean, this is how sick this guy truly was. But here's what's interesting about Nero. Revelation thirteen eighteen again says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Right? The 666. In both Greek and Hebrew, if you study these things, you know that the letters are numbers. So every Hebrew letter is also a number. Every Greek letter is also a number. So in the Hebrew alphabet... The Hebrew letter Aleph is one, Bet is two, Gimel is three, and then on down through the Hebrew Aleph Bet. When you add up Caesar Nero in Hebrew by the number of each letter, you get 666. And that's why Bible scholars across the years have looked at that and said, hmm, hmm, interesting. Nero, who is a rabid killer of Christians... 
So Rick, wait, wait, are you, are you saying Nero's Antichrist? No, because by the time John's writing this, he had fallen. But what I am suggesting to you is at a minimum, Nero is a type or a picture of Antichrist. But more than that, it's entirely likely that the spirit that was in Nero was the Antichrist spirit. The same spirit, mind you, that will fill Antichrist at this point in the tribulation and bring about his insane desire to chop off heads and kill people. John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it's the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. My friends, Antichrist is the religious spirit. We're talking about religion. And false religion and religious spirits abound in the world today, and Antichrist is the leader of that. Well, verse 12 says, The ten horns, now we're to the horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. One hour indicating a very short period of time, they become in authority over the world with Antichrist. So these are kings who will reign at that time during the reign of Antichrist. And it says these have one purpose, verse 13, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Purpose, power, and authority. They give it to the beast. They worship the beast. They follow the beast. And this is talking about a coalition of kings, what the Bible indicates, kings who will be aligned with Antichrist. It aligns biblically with the ten toes of the revived Roman Empire of which the prophet Daniel spoke. And I'll just quickly read this to you. You can check this out later. But Daniel chapter 2, verse 41. Daniel is recounting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he says, In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet. How many toes are on two feet? Ten, mostly, usually, unless you had a lawnmower accident or something. But ten toes, toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery. So some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. We're talking here about a beastly union with ten States, ten kings, ten leaders. I'm not going to take the time tonight because we're already late into the into the hour. But I'm not going to talk about the European Union tonight. But we have looked at that and considered the European Union, and I still I still stand on that. It was so interesting, you know, teaching Revelation several years ago, and then all of a sudden all the interest turned to Islam and and, and what that's going to be, and and the whole time I was sitting here going, I just don't, I don't think that fits. And I knew I was going to have to read and teach Revelation again at some point down the line. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to learn this Islam thing. And where we sit right now, the European Union is still a far more interesting and likely player. The European Union began with the signing of the Benelux Treaty between Holland and Luxembourg and Belgium in 1948. 1948, same year Israel became a nation again. Note that. The same year that Israel is revived, perhaps the roots of the revived Roman Empire begin to grow. Same time. 
Remember what I said before, we're talking about empires that existed at the time of Israel as a nation. So in between AD 70 and 1948, really doesn't matter. 1948, Israel's a nation and boom, here comes this European Union. 25 countries now make up the the European Union today. Originally, the nickname of the European Union was, anyone remember? The Big Ten. The Big Ten. It's writhing today. I mean, it's really convulsing, the European Union is, with the whole Brexit thing. And and again, we've had this conversation. But as these 25 nations are all jockeying for position, they all want to be among the top 10 nations, among the primary leaders of the European Union. And what's interesting to me is that the symbol of the European Union originally comes right out of Greek mythology, and her name is Europa. The European Union, Europa. You know what Europa is? The picture? A woman riding a beast. So we see a tie-in there, even to John's description, as he sees this, this beastly uh, woman, or this woman riding on this, this beast with the heads and everything. I mean, we're seeing this, this connection here, perhaps to the European Union. Daniel chapter 7, again, you can read this later but tells us ten horns will rise. Just as John is now describing ten kings, ten horns will rise, and an eleventh horn is going to grow right out among them, out of this union of the ten kings. And that eleventh horn is going to rip out three of the rulers and dominate the rest. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts, and the little horn is Antichrist. So you see this revived Roman Empire, Europe, European Union, if you will, rising up, ten kings... And then an eleventh comes up, rips out three of them, takes charge of the whole thing. That's Antichrist as he begins to rule and dominate. Verse 14, back in Revelation 17, says that these, talking about this union here with Antichrist, will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And I love this verse. Man, I'll tell you, it's the the one verse in Revelation 17 I can just sit on and read over and over. It's the one that brings me peace. It's the one that fills me with joy because you know what this does? This tells us exactly where we will be positionally when Jesus comes back. We'll be with Him. Note that. They wage war with the Lamb, who is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and those who are with Him, called, chosen, and faithful. I'll tell you what, if the Lamb is at war, that's where I want to be. If the Lamb is sitting by a quiet stream, that's where I want to be. If if the Lamb lays me down in green grass, that's where I want to be. If He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, that's where I want to be. Wherever the Lamb is, is where I want to be. And the promise is, those who are called and chosen and faithful will be with the Lamb. With Him. And by the way, that's the motive right here of all active faith. 
That He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And that we're going to be with Him. The promise of His presence now, but especially then. We return when He returns. 1 Thessalonians 3.11 Paul said, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. We come with Him. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Man, forget religion. Remember Jesus. We're going to be where He is. But note this, and this is important. I hinted at this when we studied it a few weeks ago. This verse 14. Note that here He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Jesus must first be Lord of Lords and King of Kings of your life. Lord of Lords first and then King of Kings. That's the heart of those who are called and chosen and faithful, that He's Lord. We know Jesus as Lord and King. Yes, and King, but not just King. We know Him as Lord. See, He's not just the King who we acknowledge. He's in charge. What people call the man upstairs. You know, He's, I, I believe in God. Okay, so He's your King. Is He your Lord? Have you made Him your Lord? Is He Lord of every aspect of your life. I pray this today and I pray it often. Because I can tell you honestly, while I have claimed Jesus as Lord, I believe in Jesus as Lord, I know there are still little aspects of rebellion in my life that do not give Him Lordship. And I pray, Jesus, be Lord. When those things come up, when those ugly, beastly things come up and I see them in the mirror looking back at me, I say, Jesus, would you take Lordship over this? Is there something in your life that you have not given Him lordship over? Something you're still holding on to? If there are things we're holding on to, we're saying, oh, you're king, but I'm just not sure about Lord. Well, the called, the chosen, and the faithful call first. They call Him Lord of Lords and then King of Kings. And then note the difference. It flips when He comes back. Revelation 19, 16. You can glance over there if you want to just to prove what I'm saying. Here, he's, he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. There, He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why does it change? Because He returns as a mighty King to a world that has not called Him Lord. A world that recognizes He's King as He's coming in His glory and power, but they will bend the knee before Him as Lord, and yet, at that point, it'll be too late. That's when all false religion has already been crushed. He comes to a world that has not called on Him, a world that has not chosen Him, a world that has not been faithful to Him. Verse 15 again, He said to me, the waters on which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So she is dominating world religion, false religion, mystery, Babylon dominating And verse 16, we looked at this Sunday, the ten horns which you saw are the beast. These will hate the harlot, or and the beast. These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. And I told you Sunday, because at the end of it all, she's just a harlot. When it's all said and done, false religion is just a whore. That's all it is. 
And so, the ten, the, the ten kings and Antichrist and those who at first, well, at first she was riding them, and then they were carrying her, and now she is absolutely desolate, wiped out. For God, verse 17, has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose by giving their kingdom to the beast until, until note this, the words of God will be fulfilled. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. We can have all kinds of schemes, all kinds of visions, all kinds of ideas about how we're going to live our life, but it's, it's God's counsel that stands ultimately to the end. And so what we see here is the final desolation of world religion. Commercial Babylon's coming. That's next. But here, the destroyers, the desolators of world religion are those who engaged in world religion. Those who worshipped the Madonna and child. Those who, who worship mystery Babylon. Those who were caught up in all of it and in, and in the conglomeration of all the religion of the world, they themselves turn on religion and desolate it. Wipe it out. We'll have nothing to do with it. It's dead and it's gone. And note this, God allows it. Oh, not just the desolation. He allows religion right now. If you want to be religious, you can be. I think part of the reason why God allows religion is so we can see how empty it is. He allows it right now, but He uses the hard-hearted beast and the kings and all the rebellious world to crush religion, and He does so fulfilling His own word. Isaiah 46, verse 9, He says, Remember the former things long past. I am God. There is no other. I'm God. There's, there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east. And the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. The word of the Lord will be fulfilled. And in verse 18, the woman who you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. And that is, that is commercial Babylon. Wait, what? What do you mean? The woman who you saw, this mystery Babylon, is also the great city Babylon, which reigns over the kings of the earth. And what verse 18 now is doing is John is now connecting the false religion that has been crushed. Now he's turning his sights on the commercial aspect of Babylon, the actual city. So verse 18 is a connection between chapter 17 and chapter 18. Associating, if you will, religious and commercial Babylon. The mystery on the one hand and the marketplace on the other. The idolatry and the industry. The paganism and the power mongers. And ultimately, both will fall hard. You know what can't fall? You know what will not fall? A relationship with Jesus Christ. That will stand forever. And though all the world fall around us, and as we talked about Sunday, if everything fell apart, if you lost everything, what would you have left? 
And if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you could lose the whole world and you would still belong to Him. Let's pray. Father, save us from religion. Save us for and by and through a relationship with Jesus. I ask, Lord, for myself and for my brothers and sisters that these not be words. That even the the idea of relationship over religion would not be a simple catchphrase for us as followers of Jesus. It would be our reality. May we, Father, learn to be closer to You than even to each other. Lord, Jesus, I want to be more near to You than my own wife, than my own children, than my, my dearest friends and my closest family. There are many people around me I love Dearly, Lord, but, but Jesus, I never want to lose what I have with You. You've promised me that no one can snatch me out of Your hand. That Your Father, who is greater than all, holds us as well, and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. So I pray tonight, Lord, hold us close. Hold us close, Lord, for, for brothers or sisters who, who feel like they've really been out there. For my brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord, who feel like they've been wandering. Who aren't sure or feel distant from you. Hold us close. Hold us close, Lord. May we trust in you as our Lord of Lords right now and King of Kings to come. We give our lives to You. And tonight as I pray and as we're about to sing a song, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, would you just with eyes closed accept Him? And for those of you who have accepted Him, him I, I, I pray this prayer over and over. So you can join me in praying to your hearts to the Lord. Simply say to Him again or for the first time, Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, come be my Savior. I believe that You are Christ the Messiah, Son of the living God. I I want to enter this relationship with You right now. I want to be in relationship with You always. And so Lord, I pray, come into my heart. Be my Lord. I receive You as Lord and His King. In Jesus' name, Amen. If we can pray anything for you, why don't you come forward and we can pray right now. But let's stand and sing together.